Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12. We've been working our way through Hebrews um, all fall, um, and we just have a couple weeks left as we wrap up chapters 12 and 13 in the next uh, two or three weeks. Um, Hebrews is a, a letter that was written to a group of believers who are struggling. They're struggling because they're, they're receiving pressure, they're receiving some cultural um, struggle, um, they're being persecuted, and really it's, it's clearly um, because of their faith. And so they're considering whether or not Jesus is worth it, they're considering whether or not they need to stay um, in belief, or if they want to go back to Judaism, go back to things that are, are familiar to them. And so the author of Hebrews has just been imploring them over and over and over again through a variety of means, hey, don't, don't leave Jesus. There is no other means of salvation. He is enough. He is sufficient, and he will care for you. And so this letter has, has it's, it's, it's a heavy letter because they're struggling with real situations. They've been imprisoned. They've been humiliated and mocked. They've, been, they've had the, the plundering of their property. They're struggling and asking real questions. And so in chapter 10, we saw that he's basically saying, listen, I'm imploring you to stay. And then he encourages, encourages them by saying, and we're not those who will shrink back. And so through chapter 11, he walks through giving them examples of those who in faith have, have kept with Jesus, who have stayed with Jesus, who have trusted that Jesus is sufficient. And he's reminding them they had less than we have. Because they were looking forward to the cross. They were looking forward to hope. They were looking forward to a Redeemer, trusting that God would do what he said he would do. And the church in Hebrews and, and us, we get to look back and say, and he did it. Like he sent Jesus. Jesus walked um, among humanity. He lived the life we were meant to live. He died the death that we deserve. And he defeated sin and Satan and death. And he, he lives today. So like we get to look back and say, Jesus has come and he has, been what, he has done what he said he would do. And so now we can trust that he will return for us again. That the promises of scripture are indeed true. And so he's telling them, don't shrink back. And so kind of the scene that we're going to see this morning is this. If you can imagine kind of a halftime speech, right? Where you walked in and you were anticipating um, this is going to go well. We're going to win. And, and you've taken their best punch. And it's been a lot harder than you anticipated. It's a lot more difficult than you anticipated. And so you're sore and you're down on a knee and you're breathing hard and you're bloody and you're sweaty. And you're like... I don't know if it's worth it. I don't know if I want to go back out there for another half. Like, what, what are we doing here? And Hebrews 12, right, is going to paint that scene in, in verses like 10 and 11 and 12. It's going to talk about knees that have like crumbled, right? Legs that are lame. But it's going to begin with this idea of a race that we're running. And it's this speech telling us, listen, there's much to contend for. There's much to fight for. And even though things have not gone the way you've anticipated, and and maybe some of you this morning are already thinking that, like marriage hasn't gone the way you anticipated, right? Parenting hasn't gone the way you anticipated. School isn't going the way you anticipated. A job that you thought you knew what it was going to look like, and it just hasn't looked like that. And you're going, I don't know if I want to continue in these things. They're asking this question about faith, right? They're going, hey, this Jesus thing isn't exactly what I anticipated. Should we stick with it? So let's pick up in in chapter 12, verse 1, with this scene in mind. 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay also aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we might share his holiness. For, the moment all, for in the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make, path, make straight paths for your feet. So that what is lame may not be put out for joint, but rather be healed. We're going to stop there for the moment. So... Right, you, you see this, he's saying, listen, you, your knees are drooping, they're weak, your hands are down, you're not running the race, you're considering whether or not you're going to just kind of disqualify yourself and walk off the track. That's the scene, that's where they're at, and he's saying, be encouraged. And he's, right, this is what he's been doing for the whole book. He's told them, listen, you can't coast, right, we're running a race. He's told them earlier in Hebrews, we don't drift into godliness, we don't drift into holiness, Right, that we have to be pursuing it, after it. He's warned them that if you leave this, there is no other salvation. He's reminded them that Jesus is better than the priestly system. He's better than the prophets. He's better than anything, any of the shadows of things that they would have seen in the Old Testament. He's exhorted them. He has taught them. He has given the examples of faith. He's reminded them, listen, you're not alone. You're not the first to ask these questions. You're not the first to struggle with this. This is a common thing. And he has encouraged them. And so the two things that I want us to look at this morning are this. is The first is in verses 1 and 2. Is what do we need to lay aside if we're going to stay in the race? Right? If we're going to continue running hard after Jesus, what is it that we need to lay aside? And so he paints this picture We are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Those saints that have gone before us, right? They're saying, we've been there too. We've struggled with this as well. Are you watching, right? Do you know that they're going, come on, you can do it. You can finish the race that's been set before you. And so he says, so let us lay aside every weight and sin. So the first thing is lay aside sin, right? Like we, we get this, that as believers, we're supposed to be following after Jesus, looking like him, which means that sin should not be a part of our life. And so yet this morning, we all know where there is sin that has entangled our hearts, our minds, our feet, 
our mouths, right? There's sin that is public. And if you've walked with Jesus long enough, right, you've begun to kind of clear up some of your public sin and you've just like, but your internal sin, right? The stuff that people can't see, maybe some sort of a little less aggressive with. And what he's saying is, look, if you want to stay in this race, right, you've got to lay aside sin. You've got to confess this sin and trust that Jesus has died for it. Right, that he has forgiven you of it. And if you confess it, right, that he will make you righteous. In Psalm 139, we see this. The psalmist writes in verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. That maybe for you this morning, that's just really where it would, the sermon almost needs to stop is that you just need to ask the Lord to, to reveal in your heart, what ways am I displeasing you? In what ways, that maybe am I unaware that I am currently sinning against you? Right, because the idea is if you're in a race, right, and you saw someone that's like actually trying to win this race, this marathon, but they're running with like a cheeseburger and a cigarette, right? And you're like... Okay, how hard are you actually trying to win the race, right? And they're out there like, man, they're, they're, they're like, man, why? I'm cramping up really bad. Like, put the cheeseburger down, man, right? Like, lay it down. Lay it aside. You look foolish because you're trying to race and you're smoking. <laughs> and you're trying to race and you're eating a cheeseburger, right? And he's saying, so lay aside the sin, these things that would encumber you. But he's also going to say something else. It's not just the sin, right, that you would expect to be talked about. He says, I want you to lay aside every weight. Some of your translations would say every encumbrance in verse 1. These are things that are not sin. These are just things that are in your life right now that are not sin. But that they're keeping you from looking at Jesus. They're keeping you from focusing. They're keeping you from being able to run the race well. And for some of you, they're weights and their encumbrances, and someone else they might not be, right? This is where it gets, it gets hard. He's saying, listen, what, what do you need to look at in your life that is keeping you from Jesus? And so one of the things that we could talk about is that maybe it's, maybe it's a hobby, right? It's a hobby that keeps you from gathering with God's people, right? And so it's not a sin. No one's going to be mad at you that you have this hobby, right? It's not illegal, Something you enjoy, something God has given us to enjoy, and yet it has taken a priority that is now a weight that is keeping you from running well. Right? Because you're no longer in the Word, or you're no longer regularly gathering with God's people. And so maybe the question that we need to be asking is this, is what is it in my life, right, that I can lay down at night and I go, man, I didn't read Scripture today. Man, I don't, I don't know that I really looked at Jesus today, but I, I did a lot of stuff. And what if it didn't really matter, right? That's just a weight that is weighing us down. So many of you know, we, Carmen and I lived in Yemen before we had kids. And there was a, a trip I went on one time, my, just myself um, with one other American out to a village. And we were taking solar panels out to this village that did not have electricity. And it was, we hiked for um, over a day to get out there to it. Um, if you were driving it, it was, it was like a five-hour drive because the roads were so rough. And so we hiked out carrying these solar panels. But on the way home, this propane truck said they would, they would take us. And when you think propane truck, I don't mean one big tank. It's like a truck full of lots of little bottles of propane, right? So that's what people are cooking with. 
And so it's loaded right in the back with propane. And there's two old men in the seat, and there's a driver. And he says, like, hey, y'all are welcome to hop on the truck and ride back to town with us. It's like a five-hour drive. And I'm like, well, that's better than walking, except there's nowhere to sit. And the path that we are going to take is a, a mountainside-like cliff. And so I'm standing, like, on the, the bumper, the railing of the truck, just holding on. Um, and, you know, your legs start cramping because it's, it's hours. And you're like, this was a really bad idea. Like, why, like I should be walking right now. And, you're, you know, your grip starts to, to loosen a little bit. And you're trying to pick your foot up and shake a little bit. And your hands are getting sweaty. And then you look over here and you're like, I think I can hold on a little longer. <laughs> right? I, I think I can hold on a little longer. Because we're seeing what's really significant. And what, what's, what Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 is saying is, He's like, are your eyes on Jesus to, so that you can see what you need to hold on to or what you need to let go of, right? Or are you so concerned with other things going on that you have, your eyes have been taken off of Jesus, right? And so you have actually, you're adding weights and you're adding encumbrances because you're not even looking at Jesus any longer. So he says, listen, if you want to run this race, if you want to finish what has already been started, if you want to get to the end to the rest that's been promised with God the Father for all of eternity, then you need to see what needs to be laid down, and you need to fix your gaze on the one, right, who's going to help you avoid leaving the path, right, to cling to him. Why? Listen, look at verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, for, listen, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So he says that Jesus going to the cross, there was joy, not in the cross, but in what the cross would accomplish, right? And he was willing to put up with the shame and the humiliation, right? And now he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's saying he's an example. He has gotten to where we want to be. He is in the presence of God because he is God, but he's seated at the right, seated at the right hand. And he walked through suffering and humiliation and struggle. So he's saying, can you continue in this knowing that at the end there's a reward? So that we can even view this with joy. The second thing is not just what do we need to lay aside, but how does our perspective need to change? Are we really considering Jesus and not growing weary? Look at verse 3. So consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is kind of the linchpin here. He's given us this, this scene of running the race. It's like kind of like, you know, makes your heart sore for a second. But then in verse 3, he just says, listen, but I know you're weary. And I know you're growing faint. And I know you're considering like just like chucking the whole thing. He's like, and so if you want this scene of you running the race and people cheering you on, then you need to consider Jesus. That considering Jesus will keep you from growing weary, giving up, becoming faint-hearted. Look at him. And so what he's saying is literally this. It's, it's turning your attention from the cliff, right? And it's turning it back to Jesus, right? It's turning it from the things that are keeping you from him and looking to him. And so the scene here is almost like a parent in the pool, right? And they're teaching their young child to swim. And the kid's on the diving board and they're terrified and they're, they're hearing the lifeguard, and they're hearing the noise, and they're seeing the water, and, and the parents going, no, 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 look at me. Look at me. And they're like, 
all they're seeing is all the things to be afraid of. And the parent is just gently, but just going, look at me. And jump. Trust me, look at me, and jump. Don't look at what's going on, don't listen to the noise, look at me. So Hebrews 12, 3 is saying, church, look at Jesus. Not the things that are weighing you down, not the sin, not the things that are merely entertaining you, not the things that are taking you from him. Consider him who has done what we are being asked to do, who has endured from sinners hostility against himself so that we would not grow weary or faint-hearted. And then he just reminds them. There, there have been uh, martyrs in church history, but in verse 4 he just tells the church here he's writing to, look, you've resisted, but not to the point of shedding your blood, Right? Like, so, like, let's just keep things in perspective here. The issue then he will begin to move into, um, through verse 11, is this idea of, of discipline. That God disciplines those who are his. And real quick, we just need to say, discipline does not equal punishment. Alright, when you hear discipline, you think punishment, most likely. We need to get the word punishment out of our head. Because there are those who feel like God is always looking to crush them, to, to destroy them, to punish them. That God's looking to strike them with lightning bolts. This is not what he's talking about. Discipline does not equal punishment. Discipline, if you need to substitute a word for it here, substitute the word training, right? He is training us. He is, he is doing something that is corrective. Why can we say that this morning? Because Jesus took the wrath of God. He took the suffering and the punishment for your sin. Not for his because he didn't have any. So he has taken the punishment, the wrath, and the judgment of God on your behalf. And so now you stand no longer being... He's not punishing you twice, right? Because he's already punished that sin in Christ. It's been taken care of. It's been dealt with. But he is disciplining us. He's training us. He is correcting us. And I understand this morning that for some of you, if you had... There's some difficulty here. Because you had parents who didn't discipline well. Maybe it was abusive. Maybe it was, it was super permissive. Maybe they weren't involved. Maybe they just weren't present. Right? And so when you hear discipline, it's not a good taste in your mouth. It's not a, a, a good word in your ear. And when you think of a parent doing this, right, it, it creates all sorts of inner t- turmoil. And so I want us to, and I, like, I'm sorry about that. Right? That, that is going to cause some effect here and some struggle with this. But what we have here is God saying, listen, as your good father, occasionally I'm going to discipline you. And I'm going to do it for your good and for your benefit. And so, so a few things here. He's never going to overdo it. Right? Malachi 3.3 3 refers to God as like the, the, the one sitting before the refining fire. Right? As the silver is being purified, that he's watching it, and he knows right when to take it out, when the impurity is gone, but before it's been damaged or gone too far. Right? As parents, sometimes we, we screw up here. Right? And we discipline, and then we go a little further because we're just a little ticked off. Right? And he's saying, listen, whatever discipline God brings is going to be just right. And it's going to be just enough, and it's not going to be too short or too long. Right? Because we can trust his character. The second is this, is that God's discipline will never be vindictive, right? He's never looking to just get you because he's, like, frustrated, right? 
You've seen this. You've seen coaches. You've seen police officers. You've seen teachers. You've seen parents. You yourself have been vindictive in discipline at some point. Where you're like, I'm in control. So we're going to go just a little bit further because I'm a little ticked off. Right? And we, and we just, we have the right because we're the authority. And yet we've taken it to a place it shouldn't have been. Right? Because we were, we were vindictive in the moment. God is not vindictive because Jesus has been the one who has paid the, for the punishment. He will never discipline you out of sin, right? Like we can discipline out of anger, out of fear, right? He's not going to discipline you out of anger. He is in control. There's never being done out of sin. Listen, we can also discipline sometimes, punish sometimes with a lack of knowledge. Like we're not exactly sure what took place, who's really wrong. And so we're just like, okay, it's just all of you, right? Did you ever have a teacher like that? That comes in and it's like, I don't know what went on in here, but you're all in trouble, right? And you're like, I didn't do anything. Yeah, right. I know, you know. And, and you're thinking, if, if you were in that moment innocent, like you feel like you've really been wronged against, right? Because you're like, I, I literally didn't do anything. We, you can do that as a parent where you're like, I, don't, I wasn't there. I don't know exactly what was said, who started it. And so like, I'm going to discipline in the moment with a lack of knowledge, God's never disciplined going, <sighs> not sure what happens, right? And so it's, it's appropriate. It's not out of sin. It's not vindictive. It's not out of anger. It's not going over. It's not going to be overdone. It is always for our good. Look at verse 10 again. For they disciplined us, speaking of earthly fathers, for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, meaning God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. And so it's for our good, and it's shaping us, right? It's, it's, it's changing us. It's, it's for a reason. It's not just, ah, you frustrated me. It's, it's doing something. So the question that we have to ask is this, is do you trust the character of God? That his discipline at his hand is teaching, that it's training, that, that he's teaching you to avoid sin, that he's teaching you how to, to, to depend upon him. Right, that he is working for your good. For some of you, you're like, yeah, I think so. And others, you're like, I don't know. I don't know. It feels like too much. Church, this morning, if you are in Christ, even if you sin, the discipline that the Lord brings isn't punitive. It's corrective. Because Jesus has paid for that sin as well. He's not looking to disown you. He's looking to, to shape you, to transform you, to correct you, to change you. Look at back at verse 4. So he says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Alright, so what he's referring to here is all the suffering that they're going through. Like losing their property, being imprisoned, being mocked, considering whether or not they want to leave Jesus. Right, so that's what he's saying. Listen, you haven't resisted sin and struggle yet to the point of shedding blood. And so he's talking about all their experience that's making them want to leave Jesus. And then he walks into a section on discipline. Church, this is not an easy teaching. Because what he's saying is that God is using this difficulty in their life. The imprisonment, the loss of property, the struggle. And he's saying, God's hand is working even in this. So I'm telling you, I want you to look at Jesus who suffered at the hands of men. 
I want you to follow in his footsteps. And as you are suffering and struggling, God's not just going to snap his fingers and make it go away. He's going to walk you through this. But it's for your good. What we see here is this, um, this interlacing of free will and the fact that God is sovereign. Right? And so scripture is going to say like, that we are responsible for our sin and our, our, and our issue. And yet God is in control. And Tim Keller, pastor in New York, brilliant man, author, he'll, he'll say, how do you reconcile these things? And he's like, I don't need to reconcile them because you don't reconcile friends. Like these are both taught in scripture, right? That we have our own struggle here and God is in control and he's using these things for our good. If you consider Acts 2, 23, it's kind of a prime example of this. Listen to this sermon in Acts 2. So he says this, men of Israel, verse 22, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so what we see here is this interlacing. Right? That God had a plan and he was working and he was moving and he was in control and he was sovereign. And lawless men are responsible for the sin that they did with false trials and lies and humiliation and beating and crucifixion. That both of these things are taking place and they're being woven together in a way that causes for many of us a lot of struggle in our hearts and in our mind as to who's, who's responsible here. Right? God is in control. So a couple of thoughts to help us begin to kind of wade through this. The first is this. Is that this world isn't as intended. Right? That we were created to be with God forever. To live without fear of death. Right? Trusting Him without rebellion. Loving Him. Knowing Him. And yet because we live in a broken world because of sin and rebellion... We have an enemy, one that is looking to to take us away from God, who's looking to tempt us and and to stretch us and to tell us that God isn't good and that he isn't enough and that he won't satisfy us. And we have our own sin and our own rebellion that wants to make us believe that about God. And so you will suffer at the hands of your own sin, right? We see that with our kids, right? Like, there's a reason we discipline because they're left to their own devices. They're going to bring about destruction, That the effect of sin matters in the world. But we think too highly of ourselves. And we assume God shouldn't touch us. He shouldn't intervene. He shouldn't discipline us. Because we're not children. And yet, really this morning we need to think of ourselves as children. And as children rail against the discipline of their parents. Questioning why. Asking why. That we often do that at the hand of God. Saying, "I I don't understand why you're doing this. Right, that, that God created us to know him, to love him, to trust him, to live with him forever. And yet this world is broken. It is being restored, but it is currently broken. The second thing is this, is that he is working for our good. We see this in Romans 8. We see this in Hebrews 12 here in our section, right? For he, they, for he disciplines us for our good. Romans 8 tells us that in all things he's bringing about good. He's working for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That he can bring good out of this broken world 
until he restores it once and for all for eternity. So it's not as intended. He's working for our good. And your suffering, sin, rebellion doesn't get this final say. Death doesn't get the final say. Jesus does. And so you will either stand before him having your sin dealt with, punished, and destroyed at the cross. And no longer fearing death. But a son, a daughter of the king. Or you will stand before him with your sin still covering you. And then there will be punishment and judgment. And you'll be separated from him for all time. Right? Like there's only two options. But that Jesus gets the final say. And that's why verse 2 is so important. That he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He walked through it, giving us an example of making it through suffering and discipline. Right? To victory. That that is what is promised for us. The fourth thing is this, that we belong to him. Right? Like that if you are being disciplined, if you have been disciplined by God, it's a reminder that you belong to him. That you're his son, that you're his daughter. Right? You walk through Walmart, right? And random people don't come up and start like spanking your kid. Right? Like that's... Whether they need it or not, like we're not going there, right? Like, but that doesn't happen, right? Like that, that's going to be a, a different issue, right? Because who do you discipline? You discipline those who belong to you, right? Because you're responsible. You have the authority to, to, to shape and to mold them into looking into your family's image and into the image of God, right? It's your responsibility, and it's, it's a way that marks and defines them, and so if, if my son and a neighbor kid are doing the exact same thing that I think is wrong, one of them is going to be disciplined by my hand. The other one isn't. They're going to be sent home to be dealt with by their parents. Because one belongs to me and one doesn't. And so what he's saying is, listen, when God is disciplining you, when he is doing this, you're not going to think it's fun. You're not going to like it. Right? No one thinks discipline is fun. No one says they want more of it. And yet it is a reminder that we belong to him. For in the moment, verse 11, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Church, maybe the most important one here is the fifth one. It's that Jesus understands. That he gets it. Right? We've been told earlier in Hebrews that he is our high priest who prays on our behalf, who intercedes for us, who understands because he walked in human flesh for 30 plus years. Jesus, with joy before him, but also we see him in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, God, is there another way? Knowing what it would accomplish, but knowing the cost that it would take. Allowed himself to be taken by lawless, wicked men who couldn't actually touch him to be crucified, to be lied about, to be mocked, to be humiliated. Who, they said, if you are who you say you are, pull yourself off that cross. Then we'll believe. And yet Jesus, with joy, went to the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father because he defeated our enemies. He defeated sin and Satan and death. And so when you are walking through 
discipline that's at the hand of the Father, when you're walking through discipline that's brought about by lawless men and sin, you have a high priest who understands, who's intervening and interceding on your behalf, and who gets it. And so the question ultimately for us is this. It comes down to this, is do you trust his character? So do you trust what is being done in your life is by his hand and that his character is good? Listen, if you were to pull our five and six-year-olds, our three and four-year-olds out here right now, say, all right, tell me about the last time you got in trouble. And they start telling stories about what they did, what their parents did, right? Besides being like comic gold, right? They, for the most part, would not understand why they're in trouble. If you take our elementary kids, right, they're going to ask questions like, I don't know why the kids can't be in charge, right? Like, there, there's this thing in us that goes, I don't like discipline. And yet, as a good parent knows, I'm doing something in you that you can't see, but it is going to benefit you for the rest of the decades of your life. Because it's going to make you a responsible person, or it's going to make you an honest person, or it's going to make you not a thief, right? Or whatever it is, the discipline is doing something, whether you see it or know it or understand it in the moment. And often as parents, we have to say, you've got to trust me. And so if we're disciplining well, if we're doing it out of love and not out of, like, right, vengeance, not out of anger, our kids can begin to trust, okay, maybe something good's going to come here. Right? Because they're even getting the benefits of like a stable home, right? Food on the table, like, right? Things like that because there's organization and there's discipline and there's training taking place. So, as adults, as teenagers, as kids this morning, do we trust God the Father is doing what is best for us? That His character is good. And that even if we can't understand why is this going on in my life right now? Why is this in me? That he is doing something in you. He's teaching you to trust him. He's teaching you to depend upon him. He's helping you avoid sin. Right? Look at verse 12 once again. Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight the paths for your feet. His discipline is keeping us in the race. So that we get what we were created for him for all eternity. And it's purifying us, it's deepening us, it's, ref- it's refining us, it's revealing things in us. He's taking us from a lesser thing to a greater thing, and he's lifting our chin to look at him. And this is really hard. Right? Like, like having some answers for this doesn't then make us go, okay, bring on the discipline. But it begins to let us rest and trust that God is doing something for our good, even if we can't see it. Even if we're not sure exactly why yet. He's helping us run so that we are not thrown off. So that we don't become entangled and encumbered with the things of the world. So this morning, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And we're going to take it because we want to be reminded that whatever struggle, whatever discipline, whatever hardship is going on in your life right now is not the punishment of God for those who are in Christ. Because Jesus has paid for it. He has been punished. He has been beaten, mocked, humiliated, crucified for you. 
And because he then defeated sin and Satan and death and lives today, right? The discipline of God is for your good. It's for your refining, for refinement and your deepening so that you will see him, consider him, and race to him. And so we take the, the cup, reminded of the, his blood being spilt for us. We take the bread, reminding of his body being broken on our behalf so that you will not ever suffer the wrath and the anger and the punishment of God. Because you trust that the cross was sufficient for you. It was enough. And so the band is going to come back up. If you need to sit during this time, you sit as the Spirit is working on you. If, if, if you need to pray from Psalm 139, God, reveal in me sin. Reveal in me encumbrances. Reveal in me things that I'm looking at instead of you. Or God, would you help me to trust your character? If you want to stand and sing to your king, do that. And if at any point during the next three songs you want to take the, the, the Lord's Supper, um, whether it's an individual, family, friends, you're welcome to, to go back and to do that. There'll be some men and women in the back that will be glad to pray with you as well. And church, like, this is why we preach through books, right? Because there's no, like, nice bow on the end of this morning. We need to wrestle with this. We need to chew on this. We're going to stay in chapter 12 next week, right? In GC this week, like, let's, let's dig into the implications of this and, and really say, do we trust God's hand? And his discipline in our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that your your conviction, um, Lord, that your your mercy is sometimes severe, and yet it's for our good. God, as you remove dangerous things from our hands. As we remove dirty suckers and knives and and implements that could cause harm from our children, even as they scream at us. God, would we realize that as you open our hands and pry sin out of them, as we scream at the, the discipline, as we hate that you're bringing that pain. God, would we begin to trust your character? That you are faithful and that you are good and that we can trust you. So, Father, this morning, we just ask that you would lift our chins and our eyes to see you. God, that you would stir in us um, revelations of things that need to be confessed, things that need to be laid aside as we stay in the race. God, for those this morning who would say, I'm not in the race, God, would you call their name? Would you make them yours, put them on the track to pursue you, to know you, and to run hard after you? In Jesus' name, amen.